This is Africa Digest. hours Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. Hello, welcome to the program. My name is Spumelele Zondi. We are broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on uh, 9625 kHz. That's on the 31 meter band if you're in Southern Africa. You can also stream us. It is channelafrica.co.za or 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. I'm with Jola Netulo, Usani Matebula and Gabon hails the ICC's decision not to open a formal probe into claims of violence after a disputed presidential poll in 2016. Up to four people take their lives every day in Kenya. This is according to the country's health ministry. In economics, South African Reserve Bank's composite leading business cycle indicator fell almost 8% month on month in July. And in sports, the Court of Arbitration for Sports rejects appeal by a FIFA former top man. Jolana Tulo has the news first. Good afternoon. The son of Angola's former president, José dos Santos, has been detained in connection with an investigation into corruption and other crimes. State media is reporting that the charges against Joseph Filomino dos Santos are, among others, for being part of a criminal association, irregular acceptance of advantages, fraud and embezzlement and corruption. Dos Santos Jr. is the highest profile figure to be held in custody since President João Lorenzo was elected into power a year ago, vowing to tackle widespread corruption. Earlier this year, the younger Dos Santos was charged with fraud relating to a $500 million transaction out of an account belonging to the central bank. At least 45 people have been killed by cholera in Zimbabwe in the past three weeks. The World Health Organization says the strain is multi-drug resistant. An oral vaccine campaign is due to begin on Wednesday to help combat the disease. Almost all of the deaths have been in Harare, with one other in the eastern district of Mokone and another in the central city of Masvingo. Safe water is being trucked to residents and police have banned the sale of street food, arresting vendors to try to prevent the epidemic from spreading. In the capital Harare public gatherings have also been banned and people have been discouraged from shaking hands. The World Health Organization says it's facing grave obstacles in containing Ebola in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. The latest outbreak of the deadly disease has been focused in North Kivu and Ituri provinces, which have been a tinderbox of armed rebellion and ethnic killings since two civil wars in the late 1990s. Senior WHO official Peter Salama says a combination of factor risks are creating what he calls a perfect storm for the spread of the disease active conflict limiting our ability to access civilians, distrust by segments of the community already traumatized by decades of conflict and of murder, driven 
by a fear of a terrifying disease, but also exploited and manipulated by local politicians prior to an election. And of course, a frightening high threat pathogen that will exploit these community and political fault lines and not respect borders. The UN Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, has warned of an increasingly chaotic world order, saying the multilateral system needs to be guarded and strengthened. He was delivering the opening address at the annual United Nations General Assembly in New York. Guterres says the only way to move forward is through collective common sense action or for the common good. Individual leaders have the duty to advance the well-being of their people, but it runs deeper. Together, as guardians of the common good, we also have a duty to promote and support a reformed, reinvigorated and strengthened multilateral system. We need commitment to a rules-based order, with the United Nations at its centre and with the different institutions and treaties that bring the Charter to life. And finally, European Union Justice Commissioner Vera Jourova has accused the British media of sowing divisions and spreading disinformation by the way it is covering Brexit. She called on the media to act more responsibly. The BBC's Bethany Bell has the details. Vera Jourova condemned recent front pages on Brexit in the British press. She singled out one tabloid headline calling judges the enemy of the people and another describing EU leaders as dirty rats. She said stories were being spiced up to identify an enemy. She also warned that what she called the bad version of nationalism was on the rise in Europe, with four anti-Semitic incidents a day being reported in France, Germany and the UK. The rhetoric of division, she said, was no longer confined to extremist parties. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. This is Africa Digest. Thank you, Cholana. It is 1706 Central African time. Now, Gabon has hailed what it calls a brave decision by the International Criminal Court to, to not reopen a formal probe into claims of violence after a disputed presidential poll in 2016. The re-election of President Ali Bongo in August 2016 by just a few electoral votes. Violence broke out after uh, after the vote, leaving dozens dead. Ali Bongo took power in 2009 after the death of his father, Omar, who took the, uh, to the helm of the oil-rich West African nation in 1967. Channel Africa spoke to Dr. U.R. Kumba, Gabonese political analyst. It is a good news, but also as an, as an African, because we've been actually um, complaining about the fact that uh, we had a view that uh, the ICC is all, on, only working against the development of our democracy. Because of uh, this, we, as an African, we believe that there is progress as, and not for, to always attack our um, leaders, political leaders. However, as a Gabonese, it's a bit disappointing in a sense that uh, we were expecting uh, something to come up. But uh, we're, not, we're not losing hope in a sense that uh, they've just said to us that uh, all the requirements that were made, made were not fulfilled. reason why, actually, 
they could not go with um, opening this um, this sanction. Uh, remind us once again of what happened when that violence erupted in 2016. That's the reason why we it it, it has been um, a very difficult time for Gabonese in a sense that um, they were actually looking for alternative and the process that justify the win of uh, the current president up to now is not yet uh, convincible uh, it's there is no strong evidence that shows that Ali Bongo Ondimba won the election. I mean, you cannot win the election due to your the fact that it is your own province. That's uh, where you get more than 95% when the population is very few. And um, it was extremely con- controversial in that sense. reason why it inflammated the whole violence because we knew that there was something that was um, that was wrong. They cooked the book. They made sure that they manipulate the numbers. And uh, the opposition raised this issue. So we've been um, calling upon any other form of organization. Um, you see the observers, the, the one who came to, to see, never said anything about it concretely, even though the evidence were there. But then this is why for us we, we see that uh, the ICC has not has responded by saying that uh, all the relevant information that was given to open the case on that is not yet um, fulfilled. So what um, the opposition is trying to do now is to convey a list of, um, uh, of um, documents that should be satisfying the requirements so that uh, we, we carry on with the process. The Gabonese government says uh, it is happy with what it calls a fair and a brave decision on uh, the part of uh, the International Criminal Court which conforms to the version of events it gave to court. This is according to the government spokesperson Guy Bertrand Mapango. Are you surprised by the government's response? Uh, look, I'm not really surprised. This is just a political a political behavior. It's a political game. Obviously, they will be extremely happy to know that uh, so far, nothing has been completely done in the, in the favor of the opposition. But um, for us, the, the change will come once people realize that uh, through them, we don't play with democracy, irrespective of what. We were not really keen on going through uh, with the ICC, but we will see what is going to transpire. And that is Dr. Yuar Kumba, Gabonese political analyst, talking to Kumbero Monjarere. Campaigning for Cameroon's October 7 presidential election has been officially launched. Opposition parties have failed to agree on a single candidate to face incumbent President Paul Beer and are suspicious of each other as they maneuver to unseat the man who has ruled Cameroon since 1982. Mokikinzaga asked why the opposition could not unite and now reports from Bamenda in Cameroon. Thousands of people marched through the streets of the northern Cameroon town of Garwa, singing and pledging their support for Paul Bia as campaigns for the October 7 presidential election begin. The people are from the ruling Cameroon People's Democratic Movement, CPDM, and 20 other political parties whose leaders last July announced that they had endorsed the candidacy of Bia and had asked their supporters to vote for him. The National Salvation Front Party of Cameroon's Communication Minister, Issa Chiruma, is one of the parties that stands strongly in support of Paul Bia. 
Chiruma says beer is the only one they think is protecting Cameroon's interests. He says people are against Paul Bia and criticize him daily or attack his policies simply because he has been protecting the country's riches from foreign predators. He says his unconditional support is because Paul Bia has pledged that as long as he lives and as long as he has the support of the Cameroonian people, he will protect all natural resources and riches for future generations. Chiruma spent six years in prison after he was arrested on 16 April 1984 for involvement in a coup attempt against Bia. When he regained freedom in 1990, he campaigned against Bia, but surprisingly, Bia appointed him Minister of Transport in 1992 in what was viewed as a way of dividing and weakening the opposition. Since then, the country's opposition has remained fractured and eight candidates will stand against Bia in the presidential poll. Serge Espoir Matomba, candidate of the PURS party, says even though campaigning has started, he still hopes the opposition will agree on a single candidate. I speak with uh, Professor Maurice Kanto, I speak with Akere Muna, I speak with uh, Oshi Joshua, I speak with Cabral Libi. That means we are still working on it. Maurice Kanto of the Cameroon Renaissance Movement Party says he will not agree to surrender his candidacy to someone else. Why should I abandon my candidature and line up behind another one? No, really, I'm not standing on my own. I'm a leader of political party and need to go and explain why I abandon my candidature in favor of another one. 28 candidates filed to compete in the October 7 presidential election. Cameroon's elections management body ELECAM accepted nine, including that of BIA. Party leaders have traded blame for their failure to unite. The main opposition candidate, Joshua Osi, says he suspects some of the candidates are sponsored by Bia to keep the opposition fractured. I have a mandate from all over Cameroon, and that mandate is to deliver Cameroon from Mr. Bia. I don't have a mandate to enter into any other forms of discussions. The 85-year-old Bia, who has led the Central African country since 1982, is favored to win another seven-year term. That would end in 2025. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Bamenda, northwestern Cameroon. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people, and we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Hashtag Mama Sisulu Centenary. Channel Africa leading the Women's Month conversations. This is Africa Digest.
It is 17, 16 Central African time right here in Africa Digest on Channel Africa. As we continue to give you news from an African perspective, it is Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. Now, up to four people take their lives every day in Kenya. This is according to the country's health ministry. Despite its high prevalence, suicide still carries a heavy stigma, which in turn makes it even more difficult for vulnerable people to access the care they need. The BBC's Pauline Odiambo has been speaking to survivors and experts in Nairobi about the legal and societal barriers preventing people from seeking help. To those who first meet her, Rosalind, a mother of three, appears content. What no one knows is that she has tried to take her own life multiple times. For many years, it was a dark secret that she kept from everyone close to her, including her teenage children. I have attempted to commit suicide in the past four times um, as a result of extreme depression. Um, That's one of the challenges in a condition I have called bipolar. Initially, um, I've been very shy in sharing about the suicide attempts. I mean, people have come to visit me in hospital, and um, I'm sure they've put two and two together that she must have tried to overdose herself or something. But it would not be a discussion when they'd come to see me, and I was better and able to talk. We talk about everything else, but wouldn't talk about what brought me to hospital. It would be just the depression, but not that there was, I had actually been in a, um, a suicide attempt. Because I felt extremely ashamed, extremely, extremely ashamed of myself, that I wasn't able to be strong enough to overcome it. And I, would, I did not want to put myself out there to be judged. Um, so I didn't share with many people. According to the health ministry, 1,400 people die by suicide every year in Kenya. And the country's legal framework plays a role in preventing people from accessing the necessary care. Kenya's penal code defines attempted suicide as a misdemeanor. It is punishable by a jail term of up to two years or a fine or both. Health experts say laws on suicide must change to encourage communities to work together and help prevent it. Dr. Catherine Mutisia is a psychiatrist in Nairobi. I know there are plans to um, decriminalize suicide, but it's a process because uh, it takes a real process by the time you change the laws. But uh, the fact that it's still a crime makes more people not access treatment. So like if I attempt suicide, I may not want to talk about it. And so I may not be able to access treatment. So by it being a crime, reduces access to treatment. And also for other people who we could have prevented from suicide, might not be assisted because it's not being talked about openly. More magistrates and judges in Kenya are recognizing that uh, these are people who need mental health services and they refer them to a hospital for treatment. Yes. Put some makeup on. Yes. I've only started wearing... In 2013, a close friend invited Rosalind to join a support group, a safe space where she could share her story and find others to lean on who had faced a battle similar to her own. When I was eventually able to, to vent out, I felt a huge sense of relief. I felt that... I was not alone. 
I felt a huge connection with members of my uh, support group because they were dealing with this issue intimately. When you meet someone who's been where you are and has tried to kill themselves before and they're telling you it's going to be okay, my friend, it's going to be okay because someone has gone through it and come out on the other side. Testimonies like Rosalind's show the impact of discretionary medical care and safe support networks. These channels can make all the difference for those vulnerable people struggling through trying times. But her story also highlights the pressing and vital need for a shift away from blame and prosecution around suicide in Kenya. The report is by the BBC's Pauline Odiambo. South Sudan women have appealed to President Salva Kiir and rebel leader Riek Machar to implement the new peace agreement. They signed as soon as possible to pave the way for them to occupy top posts in a new government of national unity. As James Shumanula reports, the appeal made by the women has been echoed by Thomas Hushek, United States Ambassador to South Sudan. The women of South Sudan who form 60% of the country's population say they want the peace agreement signed by President Salva Kiir and Riek Machar to be fully implemented without further delay. Speaking in the capital, Yuba, on behalf of South Sudan women, one of the country's prominent activists, Eunice Amer Manyok, said, I urge all the women in the country, please look into this agreement it has 35% women representation. It is you, women, this time to sit down and bring your representative. Those one whom you think they will be representing you from the top to the bottom. When the decisions are made and your voice is not there, then your right is not there. Your right is stolen. Let them choose their other women who will go and fulfill the 35% in the commissions where the decision will be made so that they can look into the suffering of their other women. Susan Wasu, chairperson of South Sudan Women's Union, says women are eagerly waiting for the day the agreement will be implemented. We are monitoring and we have the documents like this, the peace agreement which is signed. I also share with my other colleagues, but again there are so many organizations who are now holding workshops to brief and there are those also who are looking for ways of how to translate this peace agreement into the local languages so that it's easier. Then they will see a means of how to do it, either to do civic education, focus group discussion, radio talk show, for us at least for people to understand this agreement. That was Susan Wasu, chairperson of South Sudan Women's Union. Meanwhile, the United States Ambassador to South Sudan, Thomas Oshek, says... This is the time that peace can only be achieved after the implementation of the agreement. Our concerns are, you know, we need to see that going forward. And when we see a few things, like when there's still a little bit of fighting going on, and while there were some hostilities after the signing of the recommitment to the ceasefire, um, there are still places where humanitarian access gets blocked by both parties, by the way. And so those are the kinds of things that Concern. We're concerned that when there are arrests of civil society activists because of their political opinions or pressure put on them or other repressive means used against them, that this actually leads to an unhealthy civil society, a civil society that's too afraid to speak their minds and to participate in the process. And in that, if that happens, then people will not have confidence 
in their government's commitment to the peace process. Refugees will not have the confidence that security is going to improve and come home. The voice of Thomas Hushek, United States Ambassador to South Sudan. In a related development, reports from Sudan's capital Khartoum say rebel leader Riek Machar has turned down an invitation from President Salva Kiir to officially visit South Sudan's capital Yuba. Machar, the report says, met President Kiran Khartoum and told him that, and I quote, the environment in South Sudan is not conducive for a visit by a rebel leader, end of quote. The report also quote Machar as telling Kir, and I quote again, all political prisoners must be released before I set foot on South Sudan soil, end of quote. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Remember that it is info at channelafrica.co.za. That's info at channelafrica.co.za if you want to send us emails. Let's go to Malawi now, where the 2018 Population and Housing Census concludes in Malawi with the financial backing of the United Nations. And it concluded the 2018 Population Housing Census partial results show that the population after the 2018 census would rise to 17.8 million from 13.2 million based on the 2008 one. The 2018 census started on September 3 this year and ended on Monday across Malawi. Here's George Mohango. Estimates for the 2018 population and housing census has shown that Malawi's population is likely to reach 17.8 million from 13 million people. This, according to Malawi authorities and United Nations, show that between 2008 and 2018, the country has seen more than 4 million people born. But authorities have added one more day so as to finalize the exercise because in some areas there were challenges to do with boundaries and cultural issues. Mese Kanyuka is commissioner for the National Statistical Office, NSO, a Malawi government department entrusted with the event. The National Statistical Office has just finalized uh, the 2018 Malawi Population and Housing Census. We went out to enumerate from the 3rd of September as planned and we have almost finished all areas. Uh, we're talking about 99% of the total population has been uh, enumerated. Uh, to us that has been a very success, uh, very successful. And uh, um, the few areas which we have not managed to conclude um, are basically uh, areas where we had some uh, boundary wrangles between traditional authorities and we also have got a few callbacks we we want to go and conclude a, um, enumeration uh, of those households basically it's been very successful communities received the enumerators very well there was a lot of publicity thanks to the media uh, and everyone was aware more or less expecting them in advance and even the community leaders uh, we have been sensitizing their subjects, um, mentioning the population housing census in at funerals, some even have got some WhatsApp groups in the in the in the urban areas. So the, the reception was very good. Um, except a few pockets maybe for religious reasons and so on, where they they they, they had doubts and the, our supervisors were there to clarify on those issues. Uh, generally uh, the reception was 
Go. The actual figures are expected to be made public in December after completion of all data collected. The aim of the population housing census is to count everyone. All. We don't want to leave anybody behind. And therefore, we have extended for some two, three days just for the remaining few areas and there's some of the callbacks. Um, let me also mention that all the wrangles have been resolved and that's why we are um, um, hope we are very certain that within the next couple of days we will finish. So do have projections, 17.8 million are the, is the projection for this year and um, we know um, because this data has been coming in so we have a pretty good idea of uh, what we have covered so far. Uh, but it still remains until we finalize that's when we plan to release the result. It will be in December. We do have to clean the data. So we need to clean the data. We need to um, come up with tables and so on. Uh, and uh, December 2018, we are going to have results, the district, the national district, uh, up to traditional authority by age. So we'll be able to actually tell how many people are 18 years and above by traditional authority. The exercise offered job opportunities to 25,000 Malawians. Malawi authorities, likewise development partners, will use such figures in areas of development as has been the case before. The census comes a year before Malawi hosts 2019 tripartite elections in May. Prior to the event, United Nations had already projected that Malawi's population would be around 17.8 million. George Mohango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. South African News Headlines, yes, Chola Natulo. Thank you, Smulele. Making headlines, at least 45 people have been killed by cholera in Zimbabwe in the past three weeks. The son of Angola's former president, José dos Santos, has been detained in connection with an investigation into corruption and other crimes. And finally, South Africa's Department of International Relations and Cooperation has confirmed the abduction of a South African national in Burkina Faso. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. If you're interested in a real-life story of friendship, then join Channel Africa for a book reading of 65 Years of Friendship, written by George Bezos about his relationship with African icon Nelson Mandela. From Monday to Thursday at 2200 Central African Time and during the weekend on Saturday and Sunday at 800 hours Central African Time. Join us for 65 Years of Friendship, a real-life drama. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. This is Africa Digest.
And thank you very much for choosing Africa Digest with me. Spumelel is only this afternoon. It is 17.31 Central African time right here on the program. If you want to find us on Twitter, follow us and send us your tweets. We are on Channel Africa One. Now, in a bid to revamp the road, rail and airways transport system in Zimbabwe, government has decided to merge Air Zimbabwe and Zimbabwe Airways. Former President Robert Mugabe's son-in-law, Simba Chikore, formed Zimbabwe Airways a few years ago and it's believed the Mugabe family owns the planes. Allegations are that state funds were used to purchase four planes from Malaysia, although only one was delivered this year. Zimbabwe's transport system will require a major effort to revamp as rail and air transport is almost dead and road transport is very dangerous owing to poor road network and contributes to a high figure of Africa's road carnage. Here's Simon Chama. He is in Harare. The Zimbabwean government announced on Monday the entire transport system will be revamped soon in a bid to improve ease of doing business. In his address to the media on Monday, Transport Minister Joel Begimatiza bemoaned lack of infrastructure development, making the country's transport system a death trap. While rail transport remains the most effective in Zimbabwe, the sector has collapsed forcing travelers to rely on road transport. However, owing to poor roads and high accident rates, claiming more than 2,000 lives every year, most visitors are now shunning Zimbabwe. The only alternative remaining will be air transport, but owing to corruption and political interference, the only airline, Air Zimbabwe, remains grounded. Ahead of the November coup, Robert Mugabe's son-in-law, Simbachikore, formed a parallel entity called Zimbabwe Airlines, owned by the Mugabe family. The company has since been taken over by government and will soon merge with Air Zimbabwe, Minister Matiza said. Efforts are underway to recapitalize the airline through a model designed by my ministry, which I intend to discuss with the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe and the Minister of Finance as soon as possible. We are assisting the airline to return to the International Air Transport Association since it is a competitive platform for sales and marketing. I would like to inform the nation that Zimbabwe Airways is a government entity and my ministry is working towards finalization of the purchase of the four B777 aircraft recently procured. In addition, government is securing smaller Embraer aircraft in other deals still being negotiated for the servicing of domestic routes. Government is working towards finalization of the purchase agreement of four B777 aircraft recently procured from Malaysia and more deals aimed at securing smaller aircrafts are still being negotiated, Minister Matiza said. It is important to note that Air Zimbabwe does not have adequate aircraft fitness and each which has forced the island to operate on a deficit. With the new aircraft in place, government intends to merge Air Zimbabwe and Zim Airways to complement one another. In this regard, the smaller aircraft will service domestic A320s for regional routes and the A777 will service the international routes. I acknowledge the challenges with the staff at Air Zimbabwe. With the requirement, an institution once it employs, it has the mandate to provide the required remuneration to its employees. A number of challenges that include a bloated organizational structure and debt have forced the company to neglect its employees. Zimbabwe is geographically positioned to link all countries in the Sadak region and require good transport system. Inasmuch as Zimbabwe is a landlocked country, 
it remains one of the most transited countries in the SADC region. Zimbabwe is part of both Beira and North-South Development Corridors. When fully implemented, these corridors will assist in developing a coordinated approach among member states in the implementation of infrastructure in the region. In the same vein, Government of Zimbabwe, through my ministry, will continue engaging other countries in the provision of adequate infrastructure and services in support of trade facilitation. My ministry is also part of the committee that has been tasked with the Ease of Doing Business initiative. The aim is to increase facilitation for the ease in movement of goods and people. In this regard, I will be working closely with my counterparts and colleagues in the various institutions in the development of our border posts, starting with Bait Bridge. Meanwhile, Zimbabwe is battling with corruption that has threatened to pull the transport sector to its knees, Matiza Bimond. I would like to advise the nation that Zinara has not been spared on the issues to do with corruption and white collar crime. I have assigned my deputy minister to investigate the entity, including issues of abuse of office. In addition, the deputy minister will oversee the establishment and maintenance of corporate governance at Zinara and its alignment to statutory requirements. I want to create a sector which the general public will take pride in and will be confident in dealing with. This is the scenario in most of the institutions in my ministry and I will be dealing with these issues vigorously. In a bid to avoid the recolonization of Africa by China through debt, Zimbabwe is thinking of developing a new road network on its own. Currently, China is demanding parts of five countries in the world, including Malaysia, under their Belt on Road Initiative. As Minister, I have started engagement with various stakeholders, including the Reserve Bank of Government of Zimbabwe, CMED, and NARA, and other sectors. I believe as a country we can implement this project through our own resources and manpower. In the, in the meantime, as agreed in Cabinet, my Minister will maintain government terms of reference as published in the initial bidding process. These will address our challenges and carry us forward. It is critical at this juncture that government continues to engage the private sector through public-private partnerships for the development of such infrastructure. In Arari, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. Research has shown that 9% of individuals who experiment with cannabis will become addicted to it. This number increases to 1 in 6 when use starts during adolescence. In response to the recent legalization of cannabis for personal use in South Africa, the South African Society of Psychiatrists says it has noted with concern a growing public perception of cannabis as a harmless plant and that a few measures have been instituted to address this. Dr. Abdul Domingo is a member of the South African Society of Psychiatrists Special Interest Group on Addictions. Well, we have to understand and we can certainly appreciate that the Constitutional Court has made a legal judgment with regards to the right to privacy and that in this case it has involved the substance or the plant which is cannabis. But we feel that on behalf of the society, the South African Society of Psychiatrists, that this statement has to be balanced in terms of a public health point of view, that there must be a balanced 
view or a balanced message with regards to the fact that this plant is known to have several concerns, very serious concerns with regards to its use. And we are concerned that the government is not really providing the public with that knowledge or information at this point in time. Now, what are some of uh, the reasons that uh, people perceive cannabis to be, um, you know, as you say, harmless? Well, I think that there's a lot of anecdotal evidence being used at this point. I think that we all know of someone that has used cannabis and reports that it's, they've obtained various benefits from using the plant. But anecdotal evidence is not sufficient for us to recommend anything. We know that there are concerns of addiction. We have very reliable data from Sekindu showing that Adolescents being admitted to rehab facilities, in all provinces, when adolescents are admitted, majority report that they are there because of an addiction to cannabis. In all four provinces, people of all ages, cannabis is within the top four most used substances. We know that there is an increased risk of psychosis, of schizophrenia. There's good evidence to show up for that. And we also know that it causes a cognitive impairment. When, when use of cannabis starts during that adolescent period, that risk of cognitive impairment is potentially irreversible. So we have drops in IQ level. We have loss of potential of our younger population. And as a country, we need that younger population to thrive. So unfortunately, we have such a strong pro-cannabis lobby at this point, and there's so many messages coming from that lobby. But unfortunately, it's not often based on fact. It's based on personal experience and anecdotal reports. So what is it then that can be done to really get, you know, the right message out there around some of the dangers that can come with cannabis, such as addiction, as you've highlighted? Yeah, so, you know, the South African Society of Psychiatrists has been working quite hard at providing evidence towards the greater population. And I think that as South Africans, we're going to have to sit down either as families or communities and really discuss cannabis in detail because we now know that very soon Parliament will have to change the laws regarding the availability of cannabis. And when there's availability and when there's a sense of acceptability and early initiation of use, Those are three very strong risk factors towards developing an addiction, and that's what we need to try and prevent. Well, Doc, uh, for people who want to gain, you know, some more information around this and the implications that they're offer, where is it that they can go? Do you have a website that uh, people can go on? And more importantly, actually, Doc, um, what is it that people can look for in terms of signs of abuse of cannabis? So in terms of resources available, I think, number one, Google Sekindu, so that's spelled S-A-C-E-N-D-U, have a look at the results. Uh-huh. I mean, every six months they release information with regards to which substances are being used by people being admitted to rehab facilities. And have a look at the consequences associated with the use of these substances. And addiction is a terrible disease to have and causes so much, not only loss of potential for the individual, but for the community at large. So I think have a look at the secondary data. 
Google sets up cannabis position statement. There's a very detailed position statement there with regards to the consequences of cannabis use, and that includes several references available. So if anyone would like to have a look at the actual literature, they can have a look at the literature. The references are there. We know that there will be individuals who can use a particular substance, and you know many of them may be okay. But unfortunately, we cannot predict which individual will be vulnerable towards a mental illness or which individual will be vulnerable towards an addiction. And this is why we feel that people need to be aware of that of these risks. So in terms of the signs and symptoms, it's when you develop cravings to want to use more, when there's withdrawals associated with cutting down or stopping, when there's an inability to stop despite knowing that there are consequences associated with it, when it's causing conflict at home or when it's causing social or occupational dysfunction, when you are using lots and lots of time trying to obtain or use the substance. So in other words, when there's an inability to control the amount that you are using or where there's clear evidence of your use causing social or occupational dysfunction. Those are the core characteristics of any addiction. Dr. Abdul Domingo is a member of the South African Society of Psychiatrists, a special interest group on addictions, talking to Zikona Meso there. I, Nelson Holisasa Mandela, do hereby serve to be faithful to the Republic of South Africa. He was not a ruler, like just telling people what to do. He didn't rule us, he led us. His role as president in the process of nation building was exemplary and wonderful. You could disagree with him, he would disagree with you, you could even be quite testy with each other, and yet it wouldn't affect the overall relationship of your own cooperation or friendship. Nelson Mandela a giant of two centuries. It is 17.45 Central African time. Here's Wissani Matebula with your economic news. Good evening, thanks. As Pumelele, Nigeria Central Bank Governor Godwin Mefiela is optimistic that the bank will resolve a dispute linked to allegations that South African telecoms firm MTN moved funds out of the country illegally. The bank ordered uh, MTN and its banks to bring 8.13 billion US dollars back into the country that MTN allegedly had sent abroad in breach of foreign exchange regulations. Meanwhile, Nigeria Central Bank kept its main interest rate at 14% in a split decision that uh, reflected the bank's need to contend with both sluggish growth and accelerating inflation. Three of the 10 members of the MPC who have met uh, voted to tighten by 25 basis points. The rate has been at a record high for of 14% since July 2016. An analyst polled by Reuters predicted the bank would again leave rates unchanged. Nigeria has emerged from its first recession in 25 years in 2017, but continues to suffer from sluggish growth and high inflation.
Meanwhile, Morocco Silver Bank left its uh, benchmark interest rate unchanged at 2.25%, saying current borrowing costs are consistent with medium-term inflation and growth prospects. Inflation, driven mainly by food prices, was expected to reach 2.1% in 2018 before easing to 1.2% in 2019. Bank Al-Makhrib expected Morocco's economy to grow by 3.5% in 2018, citing an improvement in agricultural output and 3.1% in 2019. Agriculture represents 14.5% of Morocco's GDP. The North African country expects this year is an exceptional cereals harvest of 10.3 million tonnes. South Africa's public broadcaster, SABC, says employees' costs uh, is still the biggest cost driver at uh, 42% of the total revenue. The media company is briefing Parliament on uh, its turnaround strategy. The special meeting was called after the SABC announced that it was thinking about retrenchments. SABC board chairperson Bungumusa Makatini. We have engaged with organized labor and our employees to communicate to them the SAPC contemplate embarking on Section 189 process. This process must fully comply with the Labor Relations Act and therefore it would have been improper for the employees to first hear about this process in a public meeting uh, with this committee. That's why we had to start engaging with Labor. In some commodities news, a Brent crude oil trading at a four-year high, four high at above 80 US dollars per barrel. Saudi Arabia and Russia had earlier ruled out any immediate increase in production despite calls by US President Donald Trump for action to raise global supply. An increase in oil price means that uh, consumers are likely to pay even more for petrol next month. The petrol price in South Africa is expected to increase by 125 cents in October. And the South African government gave consumers a once-off relief in the petrol price for this month. Financial indicators now, the dollar, 10.44 Botswana Puda, 11.76 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, it's at 4.06 Brazilian Real, 6.06 Russian Ruble, 7.25 Indian Rupee, 6.8 Chinese Yuan, and at 14.3 South African Rand. Also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and 85 cents against the euro. The commodities market, gold $1,198, platinum $826 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil $81.37 per barrel. That's how it's looking right now. Thank you, Isani. Neto Chamane has your sports news. A very good evening to you all, sport fans. With your latest Channel Africa sports news at this hour, I'm Neto and ETO Chamani. Starting off with soccer news, Jerome Falke used private jets for himself and his family and exploited his position as Secretary General of FIFA to help his son to win a job, according to the Court of Arbitration for Sport Rule, as it rejected his appeal against a ban. Falke, who was also implicated in the resale of match tickets for the 2014 
the World Cup was fighting a 10-year FIFA ban. Between January 2011 and September 2013, private jet flights by FIFA executives cost 11.7 million US dollars, with Falke largely responsible according to the CAS statement on the decision. In 2013, the FIFA Director of Finance sent Falke an email asking him to find more cost-effective alternatives wherever possible. Cameroon forward Christian Basokoko has been recalled to the national team by new coach Clarence Sidov. He was left out of Sidov's first squad, with coach declaring good young players don't compete in China. Basokoko plays for Hinan Jianye in the China Super League but has been picked by Sidov for the indomitable Lions matches with Malawi in October. But there is no place in the lineup for former captain Benjamin Mukanjo, who also plays in China. He announced his retirement from international football after being left out for Sidov's first game in charge, a one-all draw with Comoros. On to rugby news. With a year to go ahead of the 2019 Rugby World Cup in Japan, Argentina's Pumas are on the prowl, rejuvenated by their rugged former hooker Mario Ledesma. Argentina had been little short of awful since the last World Cup, where they reached the semi-finals for the second time. They had managed just one single victory against a tie one-nation Italy in almost two years before the start of the rugby championship. But the South Americans have developed a knack of saving their best for the biggest stage, and their current form suggests they are building up towards a major tilt in Japan. With two matches left of the rugby championship, they've already broken new ground this season, winning two matches for the first time. The 2018 FNB CitySafe run hits the streets of Deben on the 14th of October in South Africa's KwaZulu-Natal province. Already announced in Uganda's Joshua Chiptegei, now ladies champion Meseling Chilanget will be returning to Deben. Since Deben was my first time in this, and I got a BB in Deben, it was so good for me. I was too excited. In basketball news, three-time NBA champion LeBron James was unveiled to the media on Monday as the basketball superstar begins a four-year, $153,000 million US dollars contract with the Los Angeles Lakers. The 33-year-old forward left the Cavaliers to join the iconic Lakers franchise that has won 16 NBA titles but is rebuilding after posting a losing record for five consecutive seasons truly excited you know about this opportunity and then uh, I'm always uh, in, in a learning process no matter you know where I'm at in my career I'm always in a point where I want to learn and, and, and get things from um, you know teammates and, and, and coaches and things of that nature so I'm looking forward to seeing um, you know what we all can bring to the table and how we can all bounce ideas and bounce uh, things off one another in order to, to better to better our games um, uh, both on the floor and also uh, you know mentally as well. And finally, the decision by the game's best all-round player to leave his native Ohio for Los Angeles, where he has a home, will make the Lakers an instant contender in the Western Conference, where the Golden State Warriors have won three of the last four NBA titles, defeating Cleveland each time. Uh, we got a long way to go to get to Golden State. Um, they could pick up right where they left off, starting with training camp, if they start today or whenever they start. Uh, we're picking up from scratch, so we have a long way to go. We can't worry about what Golden State is doing. Golden State is Golden State, and they're the champions, and uh, they've been together for a few years now. So, you know, we put that to the side. We can only focus on what we can do to get better every day as a Lakers franchise, and, you know, and hopefully someday we can put ourselves in a position where we can compete for a championship 
um, as Golden State has done for the last few years. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sports, I'm Neto and ETO Chamani. This is Africa Digest. It is 17.55 Central African time. Let's recap our top stories. Gabon hails the ICC's decision not to open a formal probe into claims of violence after a disputed presidential poll in 2016. Up to four people take their lives every day in Kenya. This is according to the country's health ministry. With that, we wrap up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, it's Pumele Lezondi, producer Luyanda Maome, technical producer Fiso Mashiko, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you very much for joining us. You can send your emails to info at channelafrica.co.za or WhatsApp us. We are on a plus two seven. 76300-3327 Tweet us on Channel Africa 1 We leave you with Zungan Tembi by Vosinova and Kelly Kumalo 